1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. I love the sound of rustling Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's start reading in verse number 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. I love that. He's just as absent-minded as me. Can't remember. I don't know if I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption that... As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you that it is the word, your word. Not a book just written by men, but inspired, God-breathed. And so, Lord, we pray today that as we gather around it, you'll help us to clear our minds of anything that would hinder our attention. And I pray today you'd fill me with your spirit, that I might preach it faithfully. And accurately, I pray you'd protect me from anything I ought not to say. And Lord, help me to boldly say anything I should. And I pray, Father, that all of us would have an open heart and an open mind. Pray today, Lord God, that our if, if, if we need to hear this, if we need to respond to this, you'd help us to do it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an amusing story. It was told as a true story. I don't know if it was true or not. But it supposedly was a news article that took place in Wales. And it was speaking about a feud that took place in a church that was looking for a pastor. And I'll just read what it said. 
It said, yesterday the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang too, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into a bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued trying to shout out, outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two policemen came and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return home. So the rivals filed out, still arguing. Last night, one of the group called a Let's Be Friends meeting, which broke up in an argument. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I frankly have absolutely no trouble believing it whatsoever. Do you? I mean, we hear about this kind of thing in churches all the time. Churches being divided, Christians bickering. One other person said Christians are oftentimes likened to an army. We like to sing, you know, onward Christian soldiers, and we like to quote that verse that says, put on the whole armor of God. And so this person says, imagine if Christ were reviewing the troops. He said, we're supposed to be fresh and ready for battle, but as Christ looks at the troops, he sees some of them have fresh wounds. Some of them have nicks in their armor. Some of them are bleeding. And Jesus says, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why are they wounded already? And somebody says, well, they've been fighting in the barracks again. That's the church, is it not? Oftentimes, it's not unusual to hear churches bickering of division within a church. Well, last week we started this series on 1 Corinthians, and we just kind of gave some introductory thoughts out of the first nine verses or so there. And we noted in those introductory remarks that the church at Corinth was really a very, very good church, a gifted church, a serving church, a church where people were being saved. And we always want to make sure we understand that right off the bat. It wasn't just a, a bad church. It was a good church. But we also noted that it was a church uh, that had some problems, had some things they had to deal with. And one of the problems that they had to deal with was division in the church. And perhaps this is the major problem they had to deal with in the church. We're going to see it revisited as we go throughout the study of the, of the book. Uh, but it's interesting to me that of all the things that were wrong in this church, this is the one Paul chose to start with. Division. Division. So perhaps it was the root problem. And perhaps we need to understand it and deal with it before we can go any further. In the verses that I read, I want, to, I want to make two major points this morning. I want to talk, first of all, about the reality of division. And then secondly, I want to talk to you about the cure of division, or the cure for division. The reality of division. Look at verse number 10. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And depending on what version or translation of the Bible you're holding in your hand, that, that, that may say contentions, it may say divisions, it may say quarrels, depending on what you're holding. Here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying it ought not so to be. There ought not to be divisions in the church, but I hear that it, there are. I hear that it is. Division should not be a problem in the church, Corinthians, but I hear that division is a problem in your church. That's what he's saying in those verses. And we know, and as we mentioned it around the communion table this morning, we talked about it this morning in Brother Jim's Sunday school class, we know that unity, singleness of heart, singleness of mind, is always the desired state. Isn't that what he's saying in verse number 10? I plead with you, 
No divisions. No divisions. You, you see it in Paul's words there. You see it in his use of the word brethren. Did you catch that? I plead with you, brethren. Now he's getting ready to spank them. He's getting ready to slap them around and teach them that they are, they're wrong and they need to make some correct, take some corrective action. But they're the family of God. They are his brothers. They are his sisters. And so he uses that endearing term, brethren. It speaks of, of the unity and how he feels about that. We also see it in the earnestness with, with, he be, with, with which he begins his sentence. I plead with you. I think the King James says, I beseech you, I think. But he's pleading. It's, this is important stuff. Unity, singleness of heart. It's always the desired state. And this is not the only place in the Bible where we see that. It's mentioned over and over and over. How about Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 2? We just, we just read this a minute ago. With all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is our desired state. Jesus in his great high priestly prayer, which if you ever want to get encouraged, you ever want to get happy in the Lord, go read what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Because he prayed it for you and for me too. And it's just it's such an encouraging thing. But look what he prayed. In John chapter 17 verse 11 he said, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. Prayed for our unity. Uh, a little bit further on in that same prayer, uh, John 17 verses 20 and following, he said, I don't pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, I'm not just praying for my disciples that are here. I'm praying for Friendship Bible Church in 2012. All those who are going to be saved as a result. He says that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Unity is what Jesus prayed for and prays for for us as a church. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so there's simply no place, is there, for division in the local church. There's, there's just no place for it. We as believers should speak the same thing. That's what he said in verse number 10, isn't it? Speak the same thing. We should be perfectly joined together. That's an interesting phrase. That particular phrase is, uh, it pictures uh, uh, the stitching up of a wound. Perfectly joined together. Or the repair of a tear in a garment. That's where we're supposed to be. Uh, we should be of the same mind and in the same judgment. And in other words, we should have the same internal beliefs which result in the same outward action. We should all believe together and strive together. We should all think alike and work alike. That's the desired state. You know, in ancient times, there were no diesel-powered ships like the uh, Costa Concordia, which is laying as a wreck along the coast of Italy right now. But there were big ships. There were Roman galleons. Roman galleons were powered by a huge team of men who were all rowing in unison, all rowing together. And that's a picture of the desired state in the local church, all pulling together, all rowing together, all with the same goal, the same direction. That there be no divisions, verse number 10. That's the way it should be. That's what Paul is saying. But, but, he doesn't stop there. He says, it has been declared to me that there are divisions. Verse number 11. It shouldn't be, but it is. 
Now, perhaps we should define the term division. We're using it and tossing it around here, but perhaps we should make sure we understand what the Apostle Paul was saying here. The word he used is the Greek word schismata, from which we get the word schism. Referred to factions, political factions. Probably the example we would all think of in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, would be the Sadducees versus the Pharisees. And you remember a time when Paul played those two against each other. You remember that? In Acts chapter 23 and verse number 7, he, he kind of sicked them on each other. And it says, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. That's the factiousness that's being talked about here. The schisms that are being talked about here. It's a concept that we in America are extremely familiar with. All we have to do is turn on the news every single night especially when we're in an election cycle like we are now, and we see this party politics that takes place. It should be no place in the church. But Paul said it is. It is. It shouldn't be there, but it is. When we get over to chapter 11, and I read a little bit of chapter 11 this morning around the Lord's table, but when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see that this division that took place was permeating all throughout the church. And it was even affecting things like the Lord's table, which is supposed to be a very symbol of unity. And they uh, were divided in how they were taking care of that. And so factiousness was a problem. And just as the Bible is clear that unity is the desired state, it also makes it very clear that this this unity, this division, is to be avoided at all costs. Galatians tells us it's a work of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5 says the works of the flesh are evident, which are... Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. And we think about those and we say, yep, amen, those are works of the flesh. But oh, how about that next word? Contentions. There it is. Division is a work of the flesh. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. All those are forms, really, of division. And so it's a work of the flesh. The Bible also says that this, uh, this thing is an indication of our immaturity in our walk with Christ. Our, our, our carnality, if you will. If you go over to, just flip over one page in 1 Corinthians to chapter 3. And you see he's, he's still harping on it over here. It must have been a big problem because he continues to talk about it. Look at just the first four verses of chapter 3. He said, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. As to babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So it's a work of the flesh. It's an indication of our immaturity, our carnality, and our walk with Christ. And so Paul says there ought not to be this division in the church, but I hear that there is. I hear that there is. That's the reality of division that took place here in Corinth. Well, I want to make just a few comments, just a few thoughts. uh, See if, see if, uh, see if I can make some, some application here uh, about this spirit of divisiveness which pervaded the church at Corinth. First of all, look at the description. He He says exactly what it is in verse number 12. We're back in chapter 1. He says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. That was it. Apparently all of them had their favorite preacher. Apparently all of them had their favorite speaker, their favorite faction. Some liked Paul. I had breakfast with Brother Phil, and Phil is not with us this morning because he's at... uh, at, uh, 
Kent Ridge. Yeah. I can never remember the name of that. Kent Ridge, the nursing home ministry today. Uh, back with us next week. But had breakfast with him and another preacher the other day, and we were talking about the Apostle Paul and how the Bible says that Paul, uh, number one, was not a good speaker. And number two, was nothing to look at. And this preacher was saying, you know, it would be one thing if you were ugly, but at least you could speak. You could at least you'd have that to fall back on. Or if you, uh, if you, uh, you couldn't speak, you were a terrible speaker, but you were really, really good looking. He says, maybe one thing, but he said, poor old Paul, he was ugly and he couldn't speak. So here there are some who, who say they liked Paul, they favored Paul. Probably, if you think about that, probably these would have been the ones who were saved under his ministry. These were the ones who had a reason to be so endeared to him. It wasn't so much about his speaking, his presentation, it's that they, he was their father in, in their faith. Some, probably those who preferred the more eloquent preaching style, were in the camp of Apollos. Apollos, you can look him up, you can see he was supposedly a great preacher. He was a great and eloquent speaker. He could, uh, he could uh, say things well. Some probably who were Jews who had been saved favored Cephas or Peter. Peter, who was the apostle to the Jews. And some, in and, and, and most commentaries that I read, most, most people who have thought about this think this is probably not really a complimentary thing. Some were of the camp who said, I am of Christ. And, and most seem to think that that was an overpious statement, that it was, uh, you know, trying to set themselves apart in an even more arrogant way. And not the right way that we would think they would use that phrase, but in a kind of an arrogant way. So there was this factiousness, this factiousness. Now, I'm not sure that there's a lot of value in describing the individual positions any further, other than to say that it was just, it was a bunch of cliques. It was a bunch of people who had divided themselves up and said, I want to follow this particular group, or I want to follow this particular group. And therefore, we had these divisions. And, and the fact that they had their favorite preachers, as we go through this, is not going to be the only source of division in the Corinthian church. I, I read one source that had seven different things that they were divided over in Corinth. Uh, so division was a big problem. This guy said the divisions were based on, number one, their personal preference for certain leadership skills, which I think is this one. But also there was division over their pride and jealousy over spiritual gifts. We'll get to that one. There was a lot of arrogance around spiritual gifts and division. There was division over their recognition of economic categories, division between the rich and the poor. That certainly happens today, does it not? There was division over their prejudice over social rank, slave versus free. There was division over their racial pride, Jew versus Gentile. There was division or jealousy or pride over marital status, the married versus the unmarried. And there was pride over intellectual prowess first. Century educational elitism, sophistry, he said. And so I guess my point is that as we think about these things, does it sound like it really is something that only took place in first century? It's something that takes place today. It's something that we all have to deal with today. And as they were made aware of these issues, the Apostle Paul was saying, listen, you need to root them out. You need to get rid of that. Even if there's just the slightest little bit of it. And I would say the message to us this morning is exactly the same. Do those things exist here? I'm not saying they do. I'm asking, do they exist here? If they do, we need to root them out. We need to root them out. The reality of division, it ought not to be, Paul said, but it is. One last thought I'll make, and I'm going to move on to my second point, but I do want you to see this one thing. Notice verse 11 again. He said, it has been declared to me. It has been declared to me. And you know, as I thought about this, and as I've prayed over this particular passage and tried to determine where the Lord would have me go, I almost preached a whole message on that. 
it has been declared to me. You know, the world sees and hears all this. The world knows all about it. It has been declared to me. When Christians don't get along, when a church is divided, when cliques abound, it has been declared to me. The lost see it. They hear it. Richard Baxter, clear back in the 17th century, I think is when he lived and preached. He was a, he was a Puritan pastor. He said this. This sounds like it could have been written today. He said, the public takes notice of all this and not only derides us, but becomes hardened against all religion. When we try to persuade them, they see so many factions that they do not know which to join and think it better not to join any of them. Thus, thousands grow in contempt of all religion by our divisions. God help us. God help us. What was true when Baxter wrote that in the 17th century is true today. The world sees us divided and laughs. The lost see us divided and turn away. While the church bickers over which preacher is best, while the church bickers over which leadership style is best, who is the most gifted, nonsense issues, music, and any of these other things that we bicker over today, the world is lost and plunging willy-nilly into hell while we bicker. God help us. This has been declared to me. News gets out. Our lost loved ones hear it. And they die and go to hell. I've shared it with you before, and I'll probably share it with you until the Lord calls us home. Uh, but there was a thing that happened here one time that just so affected me and so convicted me about our church and what we, we have to guard against that I have to share it from time to time. A couple of years ago, there was a fellow, he, he's, he's local here, who just came in here to visit. He, uh, he was a member of another church, and he wanted to just see this building. He had always wanted to see this building because he lives near here. And I remember him standing here, standing right there. And I remember him looking out across this empty room. And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, I've lived here all my life. He said, there's only one thing I ever heard about this church. He said, all they ever do is fight. I hope... I never forget that. And I hope you never forget that. May it never be true ever again. There was a reality of division in Corinth that shouldn't have been there, but it was. Well, the second thing, just for a couple minutes on this one, the cure for division. The cure for division. You know, the Bible never gives us a problem without a solution. Isn't that great? Never. And there is a key thought that Paul shares here that will help us combat division. And the solution, or the cure for division, if you will, is mentioned here several different times. And that cure is the message of the cross. The message of the cross. Paul's preaching style was not what he wanted remembered. And maybe if he was so bad at it, maybe that's why. But he, he never wanted that remembered. He wanted the message of the cross remembered. I sometimes wonder what the Apostle Paul must think. As he knows that we talk about him constantly. We talk about him. We use his name so much in our preaching. And I don't think he ever really would have wanted that. He didn't want us remembering him. He wanted us remembering the message he preached. Look at verse number 17. Verse number 17. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words lest the cross of Christ should be made 
of no effect. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Look at verse number 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The message, our message, must always be the message of the cross. Always. One man said it's God's powerful instrument of salvation, the highest exhibition of God's power. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ or the message of the cross, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Our message here must be the message of the cross. And that is the greatest uh, protection we have against division, is focusing on the message of the cross. That message does not derive from the power or effectiveness of the one delivering it. That, the power of that message derives only from the, <laughs> the one about who it speaks. It derives from Jesus Christ himself. It doesn't matter about my eloquence. It doesn't matter about Brother Phil's eloquence, Jim's eloquence in Sunday school, Ray's eloquence in the edge, any of these things. It doesn't matter. What matters is the message of the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That message was preached by a bunch of little tiny kids in front of a football game a while ago with more eloquence and power and passion and effectiveness than probably any preacher has ever preached because it has nothing to do with the one saying it. It has everything to do with the message itself. Colossians chapter 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the message of the cross. Jesus died in your place. Jesus paid the price for your sins on that cross. Jesus canceled all your debt on that cross. Jesus wiped your record clean on that cross. That's the message. That's the message. It's not conservative or liberal, however they're defined. It's not about interpretation of the judgment of the mind. It's the opposite of politics, power, or prestige. It's about a simple message and whether we believe. We can water down theology and preach a word to suit our needs. We can justify sweet, subtle lies that are wrapped in noble deeds. We can alter our convictions to adapt to social whims, but we cannot change the gospel. Or the truth contained within is still a cross. It's still the blood of Calvary that cleanses sin and set the captives free. It's still the name, the name of Jesus, that has power to save the lost. It's still a cross. It's still a cross. It'll always be the cross. Well, to the extent that I or anybody else here has ever preached any other message from this pulpit, to the extent that this church, or me, or any, any of us, have ever been divided rather than united. To the extent that any of you have ever been pushed away because of what you perceived as factiousness or divisiveness or any of that. Forgive. Forgive. And hear now the message of the cross if you have never Listen to it before.
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. We're going to pray, and we're going to have an invitation in just a moment. And my invitation this morning is going to be twofold. Number one, it's to the church, to Friendship Bible Church this morning. And I don't want you to think that I'm standing up here this morning and saying that we're divided, because I personally don't know of any examples of this. But this is the kind of thing that takes place in our hearts. This is the kind of thing that there could be some who need to deal with this. And so if division, if factiousness, if cliques exist here, let us repent of it this morning. Let's make it right today. Perhaps some just need to come and kneel and say, Lord, there's a little bit of that in me. Maybe you just need to get that right this morning. That's one. And the second part of the invitation this morning is if you have not yet responded to the message of the cross, will you do it today? Maybe you've allowed the division that you've seen in other churches, or maybe even in this one. Maybe you've allowed that kind of thinking to push you away, and you don't want to listen anymore. Hear the message of the cross today. Don't let other things block it out. Hear it today. The songwriter said, The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which you can hide. And his grace, so free, is sufficient for thee. Deep is its fountain. As wide as the sea. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Millions have come. Still room for one. Room at the cross.